0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941
1: at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater Podcast. My guest is Liz Diamond, who is the director of Father Comes Home from the Wars parts one, two, and three by Susan Laurie Parks. Liz Diamond has been teaching at the Yale School of Drama and resident director of Yale Rep since 1992, chair of the directing department at Yale since 2004, a former Peace Corps volunteer, and founded a theater company in Burkina Faso, which I assume is still going on.
0: It is. Co founded would be more accurate with my colleague Prosper Compaore, who had started a theater company in the capital of Ouagadougou, where I also lived. I was teaching English as a foreign language, as many Peace Corps volunteers with liberal arts backgrounds were doing at the time. I was an amateur of theater, a lover of theater, had spent virtually all of my free time making theater as an undergrad, although I seemed to ignore that fact. I was convinced that I was destined for, you know, some sort of, I had vague notions of a career in foreign service or international organization work, NGO kind of work. But yes, I had the astonishing good luck to meet Prosper and to make friends with lots of young people in Ouagadougou who were themselves really excited about what it meant to be a 20-year-old country formed by fiat from the end of the, you know, French colonial period. And how do you create a national cultural identity in a country the size of Colorado with 36 distinct languages? You know, the only lingua franca of the lettered class is the colonial language, which was French. So it was a fantastically interesting time to be there, to be young, to be absolutely convinced that theater had a social role to play in forging civil society and, you know, surrounded by equally idealistic and energetic kids.
1: Liz Diamond, we'll get back to that and bring it into the relationship between that work and your theater work over here, but let's talk first about Father... Comes Home from the Wars. Now, this was a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize. In New York and LA, it was directed by Joe Bonney. At what point did you come into it? And when a show like this is directed by one person in various places, what role do you as a second director take on?
0: In effect, you are simply another director, and you try, you endeavor to enter the play with as much naivete, as much ignorance, as much innocence as the director of the world premiere. In my case, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, Susan Laurie and I are close friends. We live around the corner from each other. I know and have enormous respect for Joe Bonney, whose work is terrific, and whose New York production of this play was excellent. It was a lovely production. I did see it. I did so at the time not really knowing for sure that I was going to do the Yale and ACT production, but in love with the play and eager to do it. And I guess I've always thought that when you're not doing a first production of anything, whether it's Hamlet or Father Comes Home from the Wars, you are entering into a conversation with past productions. And that part of your task as a director is to Not so much, you know, wipe the tape clear in your head as let that sort of settle back somewhere in your unconscious and visit the play fresh and make it your own by virtue of the completely new and unique circumstances in which you're doing it. Fortunately, Joe did not direct this in a proscenium house on a huge, epic, operatic-style stage, but rather in a lovely, intimate thrust stage in New York, which called for a, a very different approach from the approach demanded by the Geary Theater here and the theater at Yale Rep.
1: When it's being done in a thrust situation, there's less need of sets. Is that part of the issue?
0: It has to do with scale. The thrust stage at the Anspacher at the Public Theater in New York is, I don't know what the footprint is, but it's quite small. No actor is ever more than, I don't know, 30 feet from a spectator. It calls for a kind of depth of field, a great deal of movement and interactivity among the actors on stage. The proscenium is a more presentational form. The scale of the stages on which this production has been set is is huge. Fortunately, I think the play actually is epic in scale. I was glad to have these stages to work on.
1: One of the issues that Carrie Perloff has mentioned several times about the Geary is because it's so high up and people up there need to see what's going on, it creates an issue where if you're making it for the topmost row, it may not look quite as good down below because some of the subtlety will be lost. So you have to balance the height mm-hmm. with what you're doing on stage. That's
0: perfectly true. It's
1: interesting because I've
0: sat all over the house in the course of previews. Precisely to check that, you know, both on the audio track and on the visual track to get a sense of what kind of an experience a spectator is going to have. And what's interesting is that you will see a different show from the second balcony than you will from the orchestra. There's no question about it from the second balcony or the first balcony in a sense you're going to be seeing a composition that is a little bit like a board game you're looking down on it and so one of my fun challenges in composing the the movement and the uh, scenography for this was to make sure that it felt good and strong and dynamic in terms of depth of field in terms of movement patterns that would be pleasurable and contain content, narrative content, when seen from above as when seen from dead on. And it's interesting because, you know, I often say to my students, no matter what stage you're you're staging on, it's really a good idea to imaginatively suspend yourself from the ceiling and look down at your composition. Because you don't want it to be flat no matter what. Even if you're doing it in proscenium and everybody's sitting in the front row, You've got to create spatial dynamics in depth. So doing that here has been part of the interesting, fun challenge.
1: Before we get into the content of the play, which I want to, a little bit more about this, what are you actually telling the actors in Father Comes Home in terms of specifically creating that depth that will work from above and below? Is there any specific instruction that you're giving them other than the general instruction you just said
0: the actors who are in the company who have played the Geary have been very helpful in sharing with those of us who are new to the Geary the importance of playing up up up, up. chin up chin up chin up and we're playing on a rake a steep rake and so chin up while raking is a very interesting challenge but it's very much what happens in opera and it's really powerful. So I sit all over the house and I say to the actors, I can watch when an actor is favoring the orchestra too much with their gaze. One of the interesting things about this play is that it includes the audience. There is no fourth wall, so to speak, no separation, illusionistic separation between the character struggling inside their little life on stage and you. They're actually in real time in front of you enduring the slings and arrows of the plot of this great play. And so they have to play truthfully and they have to play to us, with us, knowing we are part of their reality. So they are playing a lot of their text directly to the house but they have to share it. They have to share it with the orchestra. They have to share it with the balcony. They have to share it with the second balcony. They have to, of course, play truthfully to one another. It's all about dosing it. And God knows I don't micromanage the actors. They're too good for that. And that would drive them stark raving mad if I did. But I do remind them.
1: In my head, I'm saying, oh, it's kind of more like opera, even though there's no singing necessarily or there may be some in this show. Something like Angels in America would do the same thing I would think.
0: There is in both Angels in America and in this play in a sense the actor's assignment is kind of Brechtian
1: to use a theater term
0: which is to say that it's, it's the actor as storyteller or even more aptly perhaps in the case of this play the character as storyteller. The character is in struggle. The character will suffer, and the actor must portray that suffer with the visceral, lived, sacrificial truth that an actor performing Greek tragedy would. I think when you walk off that stage, when Hero and Homer and Penny and all of the rest walk off the stage at the end of a performance, they will have and should have. It's, it's a, I think of the actor's task as an expenditure of soul that an actor is an athlete of the imagination. In this play, you have to both live truthfully in the given circumstances, experience what the character is going through, endure it, bend your soul in the process, and engage directly as a storyteller with the
1: audience. Liz Diamond, going back to Brecht, which they talked more about the fourth wall in those cases, but it's sort of similar And it's more what theater is doing these days, I think, than it did in the past or not.
0: Well, I think Susan Laurie is a great storyteller. She performs herself as a band leader. She's got a little, you know, a band, and she plays the guitar and the banjo, and she sings. I think she's always understood instinctively and intellectually that the audience is always there. In a way, I I suppose I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable you know, slapping a label like Brechtian on her work, because I think it's Susan Laurie Parksian because it's seamless. The actor's relationship to character and to audience, it's a seamless whole. And in a way, it's, uh, it's ancient.
1: Speaking of ancient, Liz mm-hmm. Diamond, when we go back to the template of Father Comes Home, we're looking at the Odyssey. Mm. Uh, I mean, obviously, if people didn't get that, they got that by the names of the characters. Not too long ago, over at Cal Shakes, there was another production of a different show that was focused on the Odyssey. It was called Black Odyssey by Marcus Guardley. Here we are two or three years later, and we're seeing the same template being used again with the African-American experience.
0: I would caution to describe the Odyssey as a template for this play. I think it is an inspiration. It's almost as if if to inspire is to breathe life into. It's as if, you know, Susan Laurie's readings of Homer, of Aeschylus, of the author of the Bhagavad Gita, of all of the authors of the great epics have breathed life into her and inspired her to try to create, if you will, her own epic for her own people and for her own time. She mines all of those texts in one way or another for this story. The great combat that takes place, uh, the great argument that takes place in the Bhagavad Gita is in a way in the DNA of the great quarrel between Homer and Hero in this play. Certainly, the return of Ulysses at the end, who's only recognized by his dog, has certain reverberations in this play there are whiffs as Susan Laurie said the other day when we were talking to some spectators she said you know it's not like it's a treasure hunt it's not like oh I'm slipping these references and allusions into this text just to tease you it's simply that they've inspired her to create a I think an astoundingly original and amazingly powerful contemporary epic that I think has legs to last a very long time
1: It's apparently, and I've read different things, either the first half of a longer project or the first third of a longer project. Or
0: the first fourth. I mean, she recently very teasingly said to me, up to 12. A while ago, it was the first three parts of a nine-part epic, but it does seem to operate in threes, which is interesting. I think, and I, I hope others respond the same way, there's enough material Embedded in this first part of the epic, you know, the parts one, two, and three, to carry a writer miles and miles and miles.
1: You're listening to an interview with Liz Diamond, who is the director of Father Comes Home from the Wars, parts one, two, and three at ACT. For more information, you could go to act sf.org. These three parts. They're not quite act one, two, and three, but they're also not quite three separate plays.
0: Correct. I haven't spent too much time speculating on what it would feel like if the curtain came down and everybody went home after each one of these three parts. There's really rich and satisfying and devastating storytelling in each one. And I think probably the answer is you could, but the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts. I can't imagine not wanting to see them integral.
1: Did Susan Laurie Parks make any changes between the earlier version and this?
0: Uh, no. The script is intact. Susan Laurie is a really generous collaborator, I and mean, I worked with her way back in the beginning of our mutual careers. I think we did a lot to shape one another's ideas about theater. I know she did me and mine. But coming back to work together after many years of working with loads of other collaborators, one of the things I'm joyfully reminded of is how generous she is and how open she is and how, frankly, relaxed she is about the process. And now, of course, she's so seasoned. She's had a flourishing career for a long time that she really understands process and is patient with it. And in fact, on this show, because she's so busy, I mean, she's working on a musical, she's working on a film, she's working on two new plays, which are in fact not related to this epic, that she spent no time in rehearsal with us. And I found that A-OK. We had meetings together in New York, around the corner from our houses, and we hung out and talked and talked and talked, and I would bring questions to her. But honestly, this play is so sturdy. It is strong. It is strong. And if you work hard and dig deep, it gives itself up to you.
1: The play was written and performed during the Obama years. Now we're in, God help us, the Trump years. When you're taking a play that was written and performed three, four years ago, and you're performing it now in a completely different political environment, are you looking at the play? In terms of your direction, any differently than you would have if this were done three or four years ago in a different political environment?
0: I think at the heart of this play is a question,
1: and it's a question for all of us,
0: which is what does it truly cost to be free? Which is a kind of tantalizing paradox, right? I mean, should freedom cost anything? But it does in our world, and it does for everybody. But this story, set in the Civil War period, featuring a community of enslaved people, African Americans, that question is particularly piercing and penetrating and urgent. And while I have to believe that during Obama's presidency, particularly in the later years, when the Black Lives Matter movement bloomed after the tragic murders that were just part of a long, horrifying continuum, It's gotten worse, much worse, much worse. And so when the colonel comes downstage with his white plume and announces how grateful he is to be white and what salvation that offers him in this world, I think the chill that it produces in a contemporary audience and the kind of shameful recognition may well be a little more profound even than it was as recently as three years ago.
1: And so for you as a director, it isn't necessarily that you're going to change anything, but in viewing it yourself, in working on it, you're going to see those elements magnified.
0: Yes. You know, as Susan Laurie has said about American history, it's a long, dumb road. And, you know, it really feels that way now after the extraordinary promise of the Obama presidency and of its achievements, It's frightening. It's terrifying. And the cast feels that, and the cast feels the urgency of telling these stories. And, of course, for all of us, frankly, in the research that we've done as a company to prepare for this production, the slave narratives that we've read, the histories of the Civil War that we've read, the histories of the Emancipation Proclamation and its uh, development of the First Kansas Colored Infantry and so on, All of these stories that we're either encountering for the first time or refreshing ourselves with for this production are, frankly, horrifying because really there are times when you read this stuff and you just think how little has changed.
1: Liz Diamond, I'd like to talk a little bit about your career going back. So you you said when we started that you liked theater, but it was no big deal until you wound up in Africa. You did some theater work there you come back, and eventually, for many years, you run the directing part of the Yale Drama School. Fill in that gap. What brought you to that position?
0: Well, you know, the short answer would be to say my work with Susan Laurie Parks. You know, to sort of dolly back and kind of look at it more thematically, I suppose. I, I guess I never... Thought of myself as pursuing an artistic life because I didn't know how anybody did it. My family was a family of upper middle class professionals, wonderful people with a great appetite for the arts, knowledgeable, and uh, you know my parents were generous educators of, of us kids. But there was no one in my orbit or in my world who was a practicing artist, so I I didn't know how one took those first steps. So I was fascinated, compelled. I painted, I drew, I, you know, I, you know, I, I acted in plays, you know, but I just thought that you sort of had to feel yourself having been touched by God, that some sort of divine moment occurred. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, if I were a total incomplete romantic, I might be able to sort of conjure a one-up one up from my history, but I won't try to do that here. What I think happened instead was working in West Africa and discovering that willy-nilly, I just had to do it. Somehow in my early 20s, I just began to notice my own behavior and that I actually spent more time thinking about telling stories and composing live performances of stories and doing so with young people whose lives to date were radically different from my own. That kind of border crossing, that kind of entering into another imaginative life, that was soul food to me. I wanted to be able to spend my life, if you will, you know, walking in other people's shoes and experiencing other perspectives. I just thought that was the most meaningful thing I could do with my life. And so I decided to go for it as a director. And I came back to New York City And I got into the School of the Arts at Columbia University, where I earned my MFA. And I sometimes joke, I sometimes think they were taking warm bodies at the time. I didn't really know stage right from stage left, but I had been making theater, you know, traveling all over this very small forest country in the world at the time in a bush taxi with a bunch of colleagues making plays in villages. But somehow I think... A core competence had developed, you know, an ability to work with people and make stuff up and compose stories and make them fun and visceral and so on. that served me well as I began to work in the much more structured and, how to put it, siloed world of the American theater where designers design and directors direct and actors act and so on and so forth and producers produce. But, you know, coming out of school in 1984, I just started doing what a young New York director did at the time, and which they still do, which is to scramble to get my work produced by any means necessary in basements downtown. And eventually, you know, I started working with playwrights my own age, and um, and that's how I met Susan Laurie. In 1988 and 1989, I did the world premiere of Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom. At a small, former parochial school in downtown Brooklyn, which had been taken over by this brilliant, genius, impresario and painter, visual artist named Greta Gunderson for the Brooklyn Arts and Culture Association. And she had turned it into this very sexy, happening gallery and performance space. And Mac Wellman, who was working with her to find young writers and directors and you know artists to populate the season, and I had been doing some work at BACA Downtown, So they put us together.
1: So this is the late 80s. The feminist movement, second wave feminism had begun to stall. Was there some kind of issues involving the fact that you were a female director? Was that particularly difficult at that particular time for you in New York?
0: Probably. You know, when you have the bug's eye perspective, it's hard to tell what's advancing you and what's holding you back. Do you know what I mean? In retrospect, I would say that certainly, you know, when I think of the speed with which some of my male peers advanced, that presumably gender played a role. I would also say that my champions early on were often female artistic directors. Ellen Stewart, of the great legendary Ellen Stewart of La Mama, gave me really my first gig. Jean Passanante, the founding artistic director of New York Theatre Workshop, Julia Miles, the founding artistic director of the Women's Project, Greta Gunderson at Baca Downtown, all of these really amazing women who were fighting probably a crazier fight than I had to fight because they were trying to run institutions with boards of directors. They took a risk on me. They said, we think you can do it. And then there were some amazing guys, Mark Russell of PS122. So Susan Laurie and I did Imperceptible Mutabilities in the Third Kingdom. We pooled our money to do it. I mean, it was crazy. We got an 11 p.m. slot at Baca Downtown, performed it for like, I don't know, four weeks over the weekends, and suddenly, suddenly, it was a cult hit, and people started coming and writing about it, and everything from the Village Voice to the New York Times to the Boston Globe and scholarly journals, you know, wanted to interview us and this and that, and the end of that year, it won the Best New American Play Obie Award. And I won the Obie Award for Best Direction, and some of our cast members won awards. And that absolutely was catalytic. Interestingly, because I think her work was viewed as quite challenging and hard to penetrate by some readers, you know, in literary departments across the American theater landscape. It wasn't like it was picked up, you know, within 30 seconds and done the way some hot new plays were. But she was absolutely seen as a breathtaking talent. And she began to get commissions. And it was Stan Vojavatsky, the then dean and artistic director at Yale School of Drama and Yale rep, who was the first, I think, major artistic director in this country to say, come on up, let's do it. And he brought Susan Laurie up to do The Death of the Last Black Man in the Whole Entire World. And he asked her who she wanted to work with, and she said, me. And so the two of us found ourselves for the first time with real budget. And that's where we met the great Ricardo Hernandez, who did the set here at the Geary for this production, who is now my colleague uh, on the faculty at the Yale School of Drama and who is a genius set designer.
1: Well, obviously, along came Top Dog, underdog, and then she wrote a novel that I interviewed her for. Oh, wonderful. But at your end you had to make a decision at a certain point, do you want to move in the realm of artistic director or traveling director, or do you want to teach? How did that decision come up, and was it an easy decision?
0: Some listeners may sort of see gender playing a pretty major role in my thought process, but around this time, and we're now in the early 90s, you know, it's weird, and maybe this happens in many fields, but you can go from feeling yourself To be pretty much of a non entity on nobody's radar, (laughs) to being, you know, what some would call an overnight sensation. And of course, you know, in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, yeah, this took like, you know, eight years of slogging, but whatever, you know, when it happens, it's kind of a kaboom moment. And it is true that it was in this period that suddenly I was getting calls to work at major theaters all over the country. At the same time, I was trying to have a kid, I wanted to be a mom. And I was very reluctant to travel. And I frankly wasn't really sure that the the life that was being, if you will, dangled in front of me by these opportunities was entirely what I was aspiring to. Which is to say that to become a journeyman director, living out of a suitcase and moving from one set of artist's housing to another across the country in cities like, you know, the Twin Cities, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, St. Louis, other cities all over this country to do perhaps the second or third production of a great new American play or to do classics. Artistically, I think that can be an extremely rewarding life for a certain period of time. It can be fascinating to try to integrate yourself into a new institutional culture. And, and of course, these, these are theaters. Many of these flagship theaters offer directors tremendous resources with which to do their work. So that's the huge temptation. But there's also a sense of not, in a way, putting down kind of long-term roots that will perhaps allow you to make a contribution that sort of extends beyond closing night of your project, and some part of me, even though it was probably nothing I could verbalize at the time, I think, felt that it wasn't quite right, even though I was also enjoying the art. So what happened was this. Stan Wojewodzki called me into his office one day after he had invited me to teach some classes with students, and I just thought I was being invited because I was the latest journeyman director on the Yale Rep stage. I had no idea what was happening. And so I was teaching some classes and having fun with students who I thought were like two steps behind me. Um, Many had had extraordinary artistic experiences, were loaded with talent. So I was like total rookie teacher teaching almost peers. But I was having a ball doing it. And he sat me down and he uh, he said, I think you need to be doing larger scale classical work. And I think you need a theatrical home. And I'd like to offer you one. How would you like to come to Yale rep as a resident director and do some teaching at the School of Drama? And I I was kind of like, uh, well, that sounds pretty good. I mean, it was unbelievable. And that's how it started. And I will say that very quickly, I discovered that I just loved working with fellow artists who are on the cusp of their professional lives. I don't know what it is about young adults between 25 and 35. You know your typical MFA director who's been out in the field a bit knocked around and comes back to hone their craft that I just identify with but I just have found it an incredibly um, rewarding way to spend my time.
1: A name dropping a little bit can you name a couple of people who you taught?
0: Yeah San Francisco's very own John Moscone was my student in my rookie year. He was a third-year director when I began to teach at the Yale School of Drama, and he taught me as much as I taught him, I'm sure, but he was wonderful. I've taught a brilliant and relatively new director who's having a flourishing early career, and that would be Maya Dralis, another Liliana Blaine-Cruz, Rebecca Teichman, who recently won the Tony Award for Indecent on Broadway, which, by the way, had been the germ of that, was her thesis production. Anna Shapiro, who won the Tony Award years ago for August Osage County, was a a student of mine, again, when I was a very young teacher. Annie Dorson, I'm drawing a blank, Preston Lane, who runs, uh, I believe it's Triad Stage. You know, there are some really extraordinary, extraordinary people. And they're doing what's cool. What I love is that they're all so
1: different. Liz Diamond, have you ever given thought to directing a film?
0: Well, you know, when I sit and watch a movie that devastates or dazzles me, yeah, you know, with a certain kind of, you know, in another life envy of like, oh, man, wow, what a way to tell a story. I would love to do that. I guess that... I see that as, as a whole other apprenticeship. I've never done it. It's a fantastic medium. I think that I'm a theater director at this point in my life. I would never say never. But what I do want to do is make it possible for younger directors who love the theater but who want to work in more, more than one medium to cross over. I see that happening more and more and more. And why not?
1: If people want to see some of your work as a teacher, are there YouTube videos out there that show where you talk about what you do? Is there any way to see Liz Diamond in her element?
0: Uh, you know, there isn't right now. There, there's a talking head uh, of me on the Yale School of Drama website. When you decide you want to find out what the directing department does, you'll see me you know, yammering away about what we do. But actually, right now, there's no media, there's no video of, like, me teaching a class or running a lab or giving notes to a directing student. It would have to be a hidden camera because I would die of self-consciousness, I'm sure. I would almost rather it happen without my knowing it. You know, lots of change is afoot at Yale University as a whole. You know, the School of Drama is a professional school, like the law school, like the medical school, it's a graduate school, a conservatory. But we are under the umbrella of the larger university, and the larger university is definitely beginning to, not beginning, I suspect they've been doing this for quite a while, but using those things called MOOCs, I forget what the hell, it's an acronym and it stands for basically some online courses. There's some of that going on, and I believe our school has been invited to do that, and I think one of the courses that may go online will be a survey of drama and theatrical history. The thinking probably is that some of the more craft and practical and hands-on courses will take more thought to figure out how those might be developed for video.
1: The reason I ask that, of course, is because there's a lot of work being done out there for actors, but for directors, for people who want to direct, who want to move into that part of the field. Right you don't have that you maybe right. there are some books but that's about it yeah
0: i think there are a few books i think one of the better ones is katie mitchell's the craft of directing it's an extremely practical and thoughtful book you know like any any art worth its name it's directing is a is a it's, it's a plastic art, you could say. it's a It happens in real time. You know, the materials are wildly heterogeneous, human beings, you know, light, space, movement, color, the works, and it's a synthetic art, right? And it involves text interpretation as well as, you know, the ability to compose in space and time. I think assisting directors is an enormously helpful thing for a young aspiring director to do, to just simply observe an entire soup-to-nuts production process from first design meeting to opening night is a very important thing and I think it's very important that mature directors in our field extend themselves to that next generation and make those opportunities possible. I think it's important for theaters like ACT, and I know they do, uh, create opportunities for young directors to do that kind of thing. That said, Short of getting in a room with a bunch of actors and a text or with an idea and a story you want to tell and starting to figure it out yourselves, you know, stealing your parents' bedroom furniture and, you know, conscripting the dog into your cast, you know, whatever it takes. It's kind of a by any means necessary sort of process that I think you have to be prepared to undertake as a young director.
1: Liz Diamond, now you've got Father Comes Home from the Wars parts one, two, and three, and then you go back to Yale. What other projects do you have coming up?
0: I'm going to be remounting uh, a production that I created a few years ago in collaboration with David Schifrin, the renowned uh, clarinetist who is on the faculty of the Yale School of Music, and Emily Coates, who is on the dance faculty, runs the dance program at Yale, uh, former you know ballerina in the New York City Ballet. Stravinsky's uh, L'histoire du soldat uh, the soldier's tale which I translated and which we uh, produced for a production back in 2014 which we did at Yale and then took to New York to Carnegie Hall's Zankel Hall and this coming September is the 100th anniversary of that marvelous piece and so we're going to do it again and I'm really excited
1: about it father comes home from the wars Parts 1, 2, and 3 by Susan Laurie Parks is at ACT's Geary Theater. And for more information, you can go to act-sf.org.